if you have an incident in your cloud environment, how do I take a packet capture? Is it even supported in that cloud environment? How do I do a memory dump? Like the things I used to do in my own environment, all of a sudden they don't work anymore. And I think this is where, where people in process sometimes gets forgotten and training gets forgotten because tools don't really solve the problem if the people that are looking at the tools don't know how they behave in a different environment or how to operate them. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Luke Schoonart, CISO of Exclusive Networks. Luke and I talk about his experience moving from a highly technical to a business leadership position, how he simplifies cybersecurity to educate others, what to look out for when kicking off a digital migration, and his tips for building your first SOC. As a new CISO with a technical background, how do you tailor your message to relate to non-technical stakeholders? And when the time comes to refresh your tech stack, why is it important to invest in people as much as tools? Luke, thank you so much for being on the show. If you would, for the uninitiated, introduce yourself. Who are you and where do you work and what do you do? All right. So uh, my pleasure and then thanks for uh, having me. My name is uh, Luke Schoenert. I'm uh, the CISO for Exclusive Networks. So we are a value-add distributor focusing on, on emerging technology. Basically, we have offices worldwide. And I just got new into uh, the role as, as, as CISO, so it's a, it's a pretty exciting time for me. How long have you been CISO now, Luke? Officially about two months. Uh, I started a little bit before uh, I actually officially got the role. So, uh, yeah, let's say two or three months, yeah. <laughs> so how long, how long were you doing the work before you got the title? Just a month and a half, but I, I always got involved also in and some, uh, some of the security stuff, if, if, if they needed help here and there. Uh, I'm based in Belgium, right? But I always got involved in, in some of the other countries. So uh, it's probably one of the reasons that uh, I got the job offers uh, eventually. So. so you have had a long career. You are not new to information security. And I think those that know you or have seen you work would say that you are much more on the technical side. What was your career like, if you could explain it to us, for those that are new, what was your career like before right now? I've been in security, I think, almost 25 years. I think even before it was called cyber. I left school and I started working for, back in the day, uh, EDS, which later became HP. Yeah. And um, I kind of, early on, I figured out that I didn't really like that such large environments to work. It wasn't really my thing. I, I didn't feel the impact. so. I went to work for very small companies, uh, for startups, worked for a Canadian company, then worked for uh, a European firewall uh, vendor because I was really into security. And I was like, yeah, if I can get to like a security vendor, then I'm at the source of all the, the real stuff. And then I uh, worked uh, my way through that and uh, went to, I joined Ironport uh, when Ironport was very small still, 2005, as a pre-sales engineer. And I uh, spent uh, four or five years uh, building um, the business in Benelux together with, uh, with my, my long-term uh, 
sales uh, person and then also mentor Chris Vandenberg. So we did that and we got acquired by Cisco. And, and I think I had a brief stint at McAfee, which, which got acquired by you know, a whole bunch of companies uh, for just after I joined. And then I, I ended up back again with, uh, uh, with, with Chris, actually, that said, why, why don't you come and work for, uh, you know, for exclusive networks? Uh, we were doing all this cool stuff with, with new vendors, and uh, I, I decided to do that. And I joined as a, as a pre-sales, then went up to pre-sales manager, director of technology. And then now, uh, in the yeah, last, last few months, uh, in the CISO role. So. so that's also a very different, you know, when you take on a CISO role in most organizations, that's a very internally focused position. And you've had that in the past, but for a while you had kind of more upfront, you know, consulting, implementation, educational positions. How are you managing the difference between those positions? Because one of them is sort of more outwardly and social focused, and this is at least partially, or a good component of it is going to be internal. How do you balance that? How are you adjusting to that? Or is there anything that you're recognizing about yourself now that you've had this change? Oh, yeah. It's a big challenge personally for me because I've always been like a very technical, hands-on kind of guy and and very result-oriented and probably like one-man army kind of thing because working for startups, there is no big framework around you, right? You just need to make sure everything happens. And Getting into like a let's say a C level position uh, like 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 the CISO now, uh, for me the really big challenge is stakeholder management and also the how how do I communicate to my management right because I can't go into really technical stuff and and that's not really the concern typically I think of the board they they are looking at at, at what's the business risk and and how do you translate that and how do you get your point across and for me that I think is my my biggest learning curve is there is, I mean, I'm a very direct communicator and, and, you know, so that's for me to kind of learn, like, how does this work? And that's something uh, pretty interesting for me. Like, uh, and on the other side, it's also when you've been like pitching products and you've been installing products, you're basically, you're getting a, you have a problem, you get the problem solved and you move on. And you don't really see afterwards what happens and you don't really look at the integrations and so on. You're just there to do this one specific thing. Right. So with, with the CISO role, it's, this is a much broader kind of approach. And you also run into like the reality sometimes of things. Like you, you know, when you work for a vendor, you go and pitch a solution. Like you have this mission, like I'm going to sell this to you. Right. And you don't see it from their point of view. You don't understand. Look, probably this, this person I'm talking to, this CISO, that's my champion, right? I, I need to help him. If he is interested in my product, I need to help him to kind of sell that in, inside his environment and inside of his uh, company. And that's something that, you know, I start realizing a lot more. Like, like it's, it's, it's not as simple as you think when you're just more in a sales-oriented position. Yep. You covered a lot there. And I, I think that I want to go back in a little bit into some of the areas that you're identifying that you need to improve on or that you're interested in, in getting good at, which is back into how do you manage stakeholders and how do you communicate with management? We're going to get there. But one of the things I think you also noted that I really enjoy, and everybody misses this, especially on the vendor side, is, and you hit it right on the head, you have to make sure that you equip 
the buyer, especially the advocate, but really they're all advocates, that how do they, how can you teach them to sell internally? How do you help them with the challenges of influence and cooperation that they have when they're trying to make change inside their company? What is it that that you leave with them that is a picture or a a number or a graph or a story that allows them to get the job done more quickly, which ultimately allows them to make the decisions they need to, to get the funding they need to. And I think the the cool thing, I think, and you've you've realized this is now that you're in this CISO position, you're realizing that. And I think it's going to make you better at sort of both, no matter what you're doing, right? No matter what you're involved in, you're going to see it from sort of both sides. That's I want to call that out for the listener, the listeners that work for vendors and the listeners that work as sort of defenders uh, in traditional networks. Is there any more that you want to add to that? Because I think it's super important to highlight. I think it starts with listening, right? So I see very often, you know, I've probably been part of that as well. Like you know, when you're working for the, on the vendor side of things, you need to sell and you go in and then, and you go into the meeting and like you start going through your slide deck and you just talk and talk and talk and talk. And one of the things is like, first listen and ask the right questions. And from my experience, talking with, with CISOs and, and talking with, with large integrators, they're not necessarily interested in the feature set of your product, right? They have a specific problem they're trying to solve. And more and more, and especially in, 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 you know, in the last, whatever, five or 10 years, it's more about the whole feature set. Yes, everybody kind of has these features, but how well can you integrate what I already have? And that's something that for me as a CISO is also super important. Like you can have the coolest technology, but if I can't integrate it into my into my SOC, into my data lake or in my other tool sets, then I'm probably not going to continue. And I think it's that's one important aspect is first have a conversation and, and really listen to what are they trying to accomplish and then adjust what adjust your your pitch to that and, and don't start going on and on and on about you know your standards features and your slide deck and, and, and so on. So I think that's 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 an important one. And I also try to understand what their process is, right? So who approves what, what kind of other things are you looking at? What are the projects that, that you are currently working on? So to get a, a better understanding of the big picture. I recently had a great conversation with a CISO out east and she was fantastic. She was talking about kind of where they were. And, and of course, I was there representing Exabeam, but we spent the whole hour actually talking about the big picture of what she had to get done. And I gave my opinion on kind of the order of, of how I would approach it and just and listened and gave it like advice from my own experiences. And we really spent very little time talking about product. Mm-hmm. But you could tell that she was genuinely appreciative of the time. She's like, this is this has really been kind of a highlight of her day is what she noted. And I was very proud of that. And I think that if you sit and just slow down a little bit and ask questions, people appreciate that. And if they're sincere and you give sort of high candor and sincere feedback, I think that's a pretty rare thing these days. People are pretty receptive to that, I think. It's a good skill to hone in on. I think it's a mindset, right? Like well, when, I, when I used to be in a more the pre-sales function, I had a personal pride kind of thing that's if I see that the product's that I'm trying to, you know, to pitch, it's not a good fit. I'm, I'm go- probably going to tell you that, which pro- <laughs> didn't make my sales guy happy. But I was like, <laughs> if you're no. going to buy something from us, and I know that's really not going to work, well, 
that you're not going to be happy and, and we're going to have an unhappy customer. And again, the bigger picture, maybe next year you work somewhere else or I work somewhere else. And, and I don't want to blow up the relationship just because I want to bring in a commission check. So I've always tried to be pretty transparent about like, this is what we can and cannot do. And probably, you know, maybe in this case, this, this is not a good match for you guys. And, and trying to have some credibility and not just trying to, you know, push it anyhow. I think that's, that's an important one. And, and, and long, long term, you, you know, people will respect that and say, okay, you know, this thing didn't, wasn't for us, but, you know, we appreciate that at least you, you were honest about it. Yeah. People appreciate candor. And I think they look for any type of opportunity to interact. People are looking for help. People are, and you don't want to damage or make them nervous about interacting with you, no matter who you represent. And that's good for your brand and for the brand that, you, that you're representative of. You told me something earlier when I was kind of asking you, we, we spoke before this uh, show, that you, know, you were very technical, you were focusing on attacks, but you noticed something that you were running into other issues, issues that weren't technical. And that, I think, is a key to kind of this next phase of your career now becoming a CISO. Now you're sort of reflecting on, okay, what do I need to prepare more for? I want to go back to stakeholder management and communication with management. How are you fixing that? How do you shift from technical explanations to business explanations in terms of what you're trying to do? I I tend to very often compare like cybersecurity to um to the real life kind of security right so if you talk about prevention based technologies i would say like okay you have an airport and in that airport you know you have maybe you know you have police and then and, and they check everybody you know you have scanners that scan if you have devices on you and and that's kind of like prevention based technology if we look at something like user behavior analytics, that would be in an airport. They have cameras and they can identify by the behavior and how people walk and how they act that there might be something going on. So I, I very often try to make that link to something people can relate to. Another example is when people say, well, but I have a firewall. Why do I need XYZ other security solution? And I would go like, well, you have a front door, right? Why do you have a key on the front door? Because you don't want everybody to walk in. But what if they get in through a window? Then that's why you have a security system or a video camera. It's not a prevention thing because they still get in, but the window in in which they have the opportunity to do something is going to significantly decrease. As these kind of analogies that I try to use by saying, why do you need certain things and try to make that link to real life? So in that vein, though, in an ongoing manner, how do you think, and, and you may still be figuring this out, I think everyone still is, no matter how long they've been doing this, you're explaining concepts there. What do you think that a CISO operationally should discuss or report on to, you know, you mentioned the board, you mentioned other stakeholders and, and other sort of executive management. How do you want to represent your program sort of in words or verbally or in a graph or how are you figuring that out, right? You're sort of starting out. So what, what is it that you're doing there and what's working and what's not? For me, I, I see my role really as there for the business to do their thing, right? Security by itself is not the core. Well, we are actually a distributor of security solutions, but let's say, you know, work for a cookie company. Security is not 
is not what they sell. So whatever I do is to enable the business to do that in a secure way so that there's no, no, no dramas, right? Sure. I think that's to understand that part. How can I, you know, how can I explain that we, uh, we, we need to have certain processes or certain technologies or whatever? How does that translate into enabling the business to sell more or to grow more or to transact more safely? And I think that's that's the, the very the very difficult part, right? It's because you're, there's two different languages that are being spoken. There's a business language and there's a more technical aspect. And the thing with cyber is it's it very easily goes into these concepts that are sometimes very abstract. Like for me, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it, I've been doing it for 25 years. It's it all makes sense. But if my car breaks, I have no clue what to do. I just call somebody and I say like. My car doesn't work. And they start asking me all these technical questions. I'm like, look, I don't care. I don't want to answer the questions. Just go to my car and fix it. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people have with, with, with computers and with security. It's a tool they use. And if it doesn't work, somebody, please come and fix it. But I don't need to know the whole technical mumbo jumbo on how you fix that and, and whatnot as long as it's fixed. And I think that's what's, with security definitely the case. Like, how good are we in security? What, what if we would have this type of attack? Would we survive that? Would we be able to respond to that? And that's that's always a very a very tough one to measure, right? How good are you against a ransomware attack? Right. Yeah, let's let's try it out, right? <laughs> I think there's more interest these days. I think there's still a fair amount of ignorance amongst executive leadership on what is security. I think there's still a fair amount of ignorance amongst CISOs that are still struggling with how to how to articulate this gap between their knowledge or indifference of the executive and the sort of the the translation that has to happen for a connection to be made of general concepts and then weighing that against sort of what you're seeing on the news you know you mentioned ransomware that's now showing up on the nightly news where you know we've had failed intrusion detections for 25 years and no one cared. No one gave a damn. And now we have ransomware, which is just a continuation of another type of failed intrusion, the detection of that intrusion. And now it's the news because it sort of detects itself, right? It's sort of disruptive and it stops the business and it detects itself. It's, it, it lets you know that it's there. And so there's a little more interest in it. I struggle sometimes because I think many businesses, they say they're interested in security, but they still don't want to really understand it. And I see that a lot in many companies where they're just doing sort of the minimum. And I think we dumb it down too much in many ways. Uh, so I think there needs to be an, a bit of education on both sides, is my opinion at this point. Yeah, I think there's a combination of things, right? If you go 10, 15 years back, you're talking about advanced persistent threats, like, you know, the, the, the fire eye stuff. But try to explain that to somebody. Like there is something in, or somebody in your network, but you don't see them and they are, or, or they might or might not be there it's very abstract, right? It's like, try to explain a DDoS attack if you've never experienced one. <laughs> right. So this makes it very abstract to understand what the risk is. I think it's kind of a, a sword that cuts on both ends with the ransomware attacks that we have been seeing in what, the last five, six, seven years, that it's creating a lot of, of havoc, but it, it's, it's also in your face and, and it has real consequences. So it raises the awareness. And I think on the dumbing down part, again, linking it to real life, first of all, 
the first time you see that in the news, everybody is in shock. And the second time, you're a little bit in shock. And the third time, it better be bigger than the first two or nobody cares anymore. This is like right. when you see, I don't know, like uh, there's like a hurricane somewhere and, and you see that every day on the news, like you, you just numb down eventually about these things. And I think that's that happens also in, in, in our industry. And then with media going like, oh, this was a very advanced attack. While, you know, if you're a little bit technical, you know, there was nothing advanced about this attack. But most of the ransomware attacks are not advanced at all. It's baby stuff, as I call it. You know, so there's a lot of this fear mongering and then too much of the same news without really any kind of in-depth analysis on it. Like another ransomware attack. Okay, yeah, another one, another one. And on the other side, Companies that are struggling to deal with this because there's an enormous shortage in, in, in qualified people, right? There, there's like if you start talking about incident response or SOC engineers, these are very specialized people. They're very hard to find. And if you bake cookies, where are you going to find these people? And, how, and even if you can afford to build your own SOC and get these people on board, how long are they going to stay interested? How many how many <laughs> are they going to deal with? So it's it's a very, very hard problem to solve. And it's, it's what we see in, in the market as well uh, with, with uh, exclusive networks. There's an enormous shortage in, in knowledge and especially with professional services and integrating. And, and now the, you know, and we see this in Europe, it's a little bit delayed, right? But companies moving into the cloud and how, how do these things now work in the cloud and which new security holes do we open up? And it's not so, not that much about a silver bullet solution anymore. It's really about how do we actually architect this properly and, and, and integrate these things because the attacks are getting more complex as well. We need to integrate different kinds of things together and then have people that if they look at it, actually know, okay, this is, this is bad and we need to respond to this or this way. It's a very tough one. You mentioned something that, that I've seen where people are sort of on this you know, some may say digital transformation. Other times it's just sort of forklifting their data center to the cloud. But whichever it is, or some combination of the two, in many cases, the security team is left behind. Whether it's their fault or not is immaterial in, in this discussion, but something happens and they figure out that they're less able to see and less able to act because they haven't done anything to kind of go along with it. So they have less visibility they have less ability to respond. You know, they don't have the ability to pull forensic information or, or sometimes they're missing logs or sometimes aren't even aware that a shift of the cloud has happened. And having talent to interface with that, to architect and to programmatically, you know, design and operate a SOC once as that change is happening, that's a lot of extra help that's required. And so there's a lot of organizations I see that are getting, that aren't not thinking about it. And they're not planning ahead for it. And they're getting caught flat-footed. They're having bad mistakes. And some of them don't even know they've had a mistake. They don't even know they've had a breach or, or a loss of data or until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. especially with the, the, the cloud adoption. When you go 20 years back and everything is in your own data center and, and you, you know nothing can get to your RDP servers unless you open it up and it's all very controlled. And, and now it moves into the cloud and, and companies don't even know if somebody reconfigures something in the cloud, they don't even know that somebody open up like RDP to the, the public internet. So there, there's, even if you look at uh, Office 365, uh, Azure, AWS, they have tons and tons and tons of, of features and functionalities, but you do have to go in there 
and properly configure them, not just on the on the functionality, but on the security as well. And otherwise, this is this is what you read about very often, right? There was open databases or uh, Amazon buckets. I forget. S3, the, yeah. S3 yeah, yeah. buckets, yeah. Uh, so there's there's this is open S3 buckets, and the customer is completely unaware, right? It's a default configuration. We we figure out we figure that if we move it into the cloud, then it's going to be properly configured. And the visibility with moving into the cloud disappears completely for most enterprises. Like if you have an exchange server on premise, and something happens, at least you have your logs on premise, right? If if that's running in the cloud and and you're not doing anything with those ex- those exchange logs, you're not pulling them in somewhere. You have no clue what's going on, and you not you cannot just go and say I need the logs now, right? It's it's it becomes a something you need to think about beforehand and. Yes. I think security historically has always been this bolt-on thing. Like we first get it running, and then we'll secure it. And with the cloud, it's like well, now you're probably exposing a whole bunch of things you didn't expose before, which means that your security should be there from the from the start. And that's a I, it's a mind shift, right? And it's not an easy thing. I think this is where when you say we're we're going to do a cloud migration. Well, we're going to have to assign budget for the security and involve the security team, but that makes it more expensive, right? So maybe we should do that next year when we have budget to do that. That's what I think a lot of companies uh, are going through. I think it can be, it's a great opportunity for many organizations and can be a great one, even for, especially for security. But to your point, you've got to get ahead of it. And it's almost like running two programs for a period of time because you've got to, you not only have to retool some of your capabilities on the technical side, but you've got to retool or up-level, upskill uh, some of your your security, your technicians and security staff to give them time to sort of rethink, retool, to say, hey, how am I going to capture visibility? Uh, what are the attacks that happen here? Uh, what does an attack look like that's cloud-specific or hybrid? What does adversary behavior look like in this example? How are credentials used in this in this environment rather than Again, what is the flavor of lateral movement in the cloud? Mm-hmm. How are points of federation attacked? All these things. And then how do I capture that? How do I, how do I view that? How do I know what normal looks like in these environments? It's all very important. And if you're behind that, you're really going to be behind. In, you mentioned bolt-on. You can't afford to bolt-on in that world. But I think long-term, there's, if you can sort of trust whoever the vendors are to kind of manage the ping power pipe and maybe some of the OS. And so you can focus more on the app. There's a lot of really cool things that can be done, a lot of great intelligence that can be extracted, and you can free up more time to do other more high angle work in theory. There's a payoff in the future that can happen for all of us. I don't know that, that we're all seeing it quite yet, or at least security teams are still sort of, most of them are catching up still. Yeah. You know, it's like, like they say, right? Security is a journey, right? It's not a destination. And some of the things you just mentioned, if you have an incident in your cloud environment, how do I take a packet capture? Is it even supported in that cloud environment? How do I do a memory dump? Like the things I used to do in my own environment, all of a sudden they don't work anymore. And I think this is where, where people and process sometimes gets forgotten and training gets forgotten because tools don't really solve the problem if the people that are looking at the tools don't know how they behave in a different environment or how to operate them. And, and I think the, the mindset of I, I just put really good technology in my network and I'll be safe still comes from, let's say, 10 years plus ago, where it's like prevention, 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 buy my product and we are going to 
block everything. And that's, again, I think something that I think people are now realizing, well, that's not really true, right? We're seeing enough of this stuff and all these companies had all these tools and, and still it wasn't prevented. So we need to have something else than prevention. And then you have, a, yeah, you have to look at it and you need to know what, what that means that you're looking at. I think with anything that you make an investment in, and that's a question I, I raise to many CISOs, or at least a point that I make, where you're going to get out of whatever whatever you buy, you're going to get out of it what you put in. And if you're not having, if you're having shelfware, things that are underdeployed or installed but not maintained, if you're not worried about the hygiene and the interaction and the inputs and outputs, sort of the outcomes with this, you're going to have a largely ineffective. Uh, program. If you own it, you need to sort of work to maintain it. And that's a partnership with a vendor. But it starts, really, it starts with your expectation before you even buy the platform. And it's an expectation for the staff to say, you know, look, this is something that needs care and feeding. Not unlike any other tool or platform that you'd have in the physical world, right? You can't have equipment that's not maintained, that's, that, that you're not looking after. It just doesn't work. And so I think we miss that often as well. And I see a lot of sort of people that they're looking for this. I don't know if they have it, you know, these sort of easy bake oven. It was like this little kid's toy with a light bulb in it and you could cook bread in it or brownies or whatever. And it's simple. Nothing is that simple. And that's one of my other sort of pet peeves that I see both in my current role and my prior. Yeah. It all comes, I mean, for me, it all comes down to investment. Like if you invest in the tools, you also should invest in the people and the training of the people. True. Because otherwise your, your investment is not going to really bring any return and i think additionally what i, what I see with, with a, a lot of companies that i work with the, the skills shortage means that there's not enough people so they get completely overwhelmed and they're trying to extinguish fires all over the place they don't get the time to really fix the root causes leave alone to go on training and you get in a, in a vicious circle right and it's hard to get out of i think to say okay we're gonna let this thing burn now and take some time to structurally change something in the environment. It, it takes, I think, quite some courage to, to do that. And depending on what is burning, right, if, if, if there's a business process down, you can't say like, well, no, we're basically now doing something else that's going to be good in one year from now. Yeah, you can't, you can't do business anymore. That is a tough one. You have to, I've said this to a lot of people, and I, I, I did this myself for many years, is, you know, if you're starting out, especially as a new CISO, my, my statement is, or a new, new team lead, anything, is pick, pick one thing you want to do and do that well. So have a, have, try to figure out what your quick win going to be. What's the capability? What sort of phase one of this capability you want to create? Do that and get that right for everything, for the esprit de corps, for, uh, for you, you know, call your own shots, sort of get credit, celebrate that rather than doing 10 things very poorly. And that's just a sort of a personal choice. But I think it also has a lot of sort of leadership merit as well, uh, or I've had success with it in the past. One thing I want to go back into, you, you and I spoke about something cool that you have personally done and helped build at your, your current employer. And it's not part of your new CISO role, but it's certainly something interesting that your company has done that you've helped build. And I think people would find it interesting you helped build a threat hunting academy. And I guess to start off, uh, everyone has a different definition of threat hunting, but what is, what is specifically the threat hunting academy and what are you hopeful that it's, is it an educational piece? Is it, is it a technology testing platform? Is it 
Is it what, why build a threat hunting academy and what are your early observations of it? Yeah, so I find a pretty funny story in a way, but like at Exclusive Networks, we're always like on the bleeding edge of new technology, right? We, we started with, with, with XRBM, like for example, like I think six, seven years ago almost. Vendors like Sentinel-1, FireEye back in the day, Palo Alto, there's all, when all these companies were very small, so we were always on the bleeding edge. And when you do that, it means that you're ahead of the market, right? Most people, and I think there's difference in the European markets and then the, the markets in the States, for example. But what I see over here very often is people are very connected with the technology that they bought uh, like five years ago. Like It's like, you know, I am using this specific product and I don't want to ever leave it. It's my baby. And so when you come with this, uh, you, you see these new problems emerging and, and you see how the powers that be don't deal with that properly. And you say, well, we have this new vendor that really deals with this problem. It's an evangelization thing. It's an educational thing. And what we used to do is we, we gave workshops, right? And what typically when you just talk about the product, you get the pushback like, you know, oh, vendor XYZ, actually, they block that. And we would go like, no, they don't. And you get into this yes-no discussion, right? And the person doesn't want to change his mind. So we said like, that doesn't work. Why don't we show how we breach a company, right? We'll show people how it's done, not on a real company, of course, but we, we set up a lab environment that looked like a real uh, environment. And we really showed, without using any malware or any exploits, how we would get in, how we would move around in the environment, how we would do privilege escalation, and just visually show them, right? So that most people have never seen an attack happen, right? And you never get to see the attack from the attacker's point of view. So we would have like both points of view. We would have the attacker on one side, and then we would see on the say on the victim side, what's happening there. And typically you don't see anything on that side. And then we would go into, we would ask the question, so how would your whatever product, legacy product, how would it detect this? And you would see people go like, yeah, we can't do that. So we were trying to, like, by showing it how it happened, that they understand, like, you don't have to believe us, but, you know, please, you know, tell me how your product can deal with that because I didn't use any virus, I didn't use any files even, so there's nothing that can trigger on this. And we got feedback. People really liked that. They were very successful. And then people said, well, this is really cool, but we would like to do that hands-on. So we um, we said, how are we going to deal with that? And we had to go into like all the automation stuff, Terraform, Ansible, because we said, well, let's build this in the cloud so we can boot up the environment for a class. So we had to learn a lot of these, these things. And again, like you know, security people can't just stay in the security silo anymore. Uh, we built a two-day uh, two-day training that's called the Threat Hunt Academy, where we took those things on board. And um, what I learned from a lot of trainings I followed, like you go on a training for, uh, let's say, Elastic, or you go on a, on a training for, let's say, detection engineering, you always it's always very specific to that one thing. Like if you go for detection engineering, you get the data lake full of all the relevant data that you need, and they explain you how to build detections. But you don't understand the pipeline. Now, you don't understand where the data came from and why that data is important and so on. And so when we built the training, we said, well, I think it's important for a SOC analyst or an incident responder or a reverse engineer or anybody in security to understand the architecture of where, what data do I need? Why do I need that data? How do I collect that data? How do I get that centralized? Uh, typically, when you build a SOC, you, know, you need to have data. Eh? 
So we, we focus the first day on building a complete SOC infrastructure. So this is completely on, on, on open source stuff. Uh, we're not, this is not a vendor-based workshop. We don't talk about vendors or we don't teach training on, on products. So once they have built that whole pipeline, so they understand where the logs come from and, and how that flows, the second day we go into the attacks, right? So we, we explain, we take a, a specific kill chain, the most used uh, techniques like recon techniques or lateral movement, privilege escalation techniques, all of them basically fileless stuff. So we're not using malware, it's just, you know, using PowerShell or using whatever is available living off the land. And we explain how these attacks work. We use the MITRE framework as a reference, how they work. We let the students perform these attacks in their environment. And then we go and explain how we can go about detecting this. And, and that brings everything together, right? Because they also now know where that data came from. And if they don't see something, they know, oh, well, maybe there's a problem on my endpoint or there's a problem somewhere in the middle. And, and that was the idea behind that, so that people really get a better idea on hey, all these attacks that are getting through my legacy uh, security solutions that seem to be like so mysterious and impossible to detect, they're actually not that hard to detect if you know how to, how to architect something like that and if you know what to look for. And that was the whole idea. Again, it's a very high-level educational thing. It's, it's very technical, right? But it's not about like how do I configure my firewall? How do I configure whatever product you have? It's more... All these products work that way, right? Any, any SIM vendor does the same thing. They have a different GUI, they have different features, but on the back end, there's the same components. I think that, that many people also need help with, after they don't know how an attack happens, they're not familiar or comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there's assumptions made that the big investments that they've made in tooling or their internal process, they're just making an assumption that they will see that whatever that bad thing is, whatever that intrusion is. So, so illuminating that and saying, hey, here's, here's what is actually happening, but then also letting them know that they may lack a capability. And that's what I like to talk a lot about is say, hey, do, do you have the ability to detect lateral movement in your environment? In the, in the variety of ways that it can happen, I don't remember MITRE, but how many is MITRE? I think it's like 15 or 16 or 17 different TTPs in related into, including PowerShell and, and stolen credentials and other things. But many organizations have no way to tap into mm -hmm. maybe any of those, right? To say, but, but they believe they're, in, they're in, in good shape. We used to do the state of the SOC report where most organizations thought they could detect a, an advanced attack. But most of them didn't have, they, they said they could only see, those same people said they could only see at max 40% of their environment in terms of visibility. So it's like there's this, there's this assumption that you're better than you really are. But I think it takes things like this Threat Hunting Academy to kind of illuminate that for most teams. A lot of vendors depend on technology to fix their problem. And a lot of, 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 of the problems arise from misconfiguration or lack of coverage, right? If, if I deploy, uh, let's say, an EDR solution, I buy a bunch of licenses and I, I, I tell my IT staff, deploy this. Okay, so is it deployed everywhere? How do you know? Because if you just, if you miss 10%, now you have a problem. You think you're covered, but you still have a big, big attack surface. And it's, it's you know, I think it's this, it's not about implementing something, but it's also about validating like, is this now actually doing what it's supposed to do? And 
it, that's also part of the Threat Hunt Academy. We also go into the validation, like if you have built a specific detection, and, and we're still doing the, the manual kind of detections, and we talk about where machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, if you can call it that, comes in and actually can elevate that to, a, to the next level to reduce noise and false positives and, and, and alert fatigue. So, but I think it's, it's, it's important to test that solution. Like you implement something, well, maybe a month in, well, let's run a few tests and see if all, all these, these, these uh, use cases, if they still trigger, because there might be somewhere uh, a component that is you know, not sending logs anymore or that's not functioning anymore and we don't know about it. And it's similar with well, when, I, I, when I was a little administrator, like, like uh, you know, like was really young and, and we had backup tapes. I would be making backups. And when I arrived in the company, well, the first thing I asked is, have you ever tried to restore a backup? And they're like, what do you mean? We're making backups every week. I'm like, well, let's try to restore one. It's like, I think eight out of the 10 tapes were broken. Uh, and it's just like, implement, uh, architect, implement, and validate, and then see where you can improve and where you have blind spots, and then do it again, test it again. And that's a continuous thing, right? I couldn't have said it better. Back to detection logic, and you know, your environment changes, people make mistakes, people make assumptions. Perform some sort of adversary simulation in your environment and then see what can be detected. It's an ongoing effort that's in some organizations, we were doing it monthly mm -hmm. to assert these assumptions and then also have feedback loop from our threat hunting program to say, hey, there's to ask, you're effectively asking, what if or could this thing happen? And when, what do I see? What is beyond my commodity controls of detection? What, what, let's make an assumption and then test it to validate it. Super important. I, I, I would implore anyone to, that's listening to consider adding that to what you do. Just ask and start to develop a program if you don't already. It's adversary simulation, threat hunting, fantastic things, but make sure you get it right and define it specifically and then look for uh, ways that you can sort of speed up the answers related to it. Yeah, it's a good point, right? Adversary, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of pen testing, for example. I think honestly, it's useless. Like, okay, let's scan the network. Here's your vulnerabilities. Here's the report. Uh, see you next year. But yep. when you start talking about adversary uh, simulation, this is more to the real life kind of uh, attacks that happen, right? They're you know, they're gonna behave like an attacker within the environment, so that you get a lot more value out of it. I think the problem with that is that these are expensive exercises if people are doing it. And you right. might do that once a year or twice a year. And then again, depending on how your infrastructure looks like, if you have like 80 locations and you, you can't do 80 of those. So there are limitations to what you can do with that. And, and networks and infrastructure is fluid nowadays, right? Things change constantly. Like we're migrating our, our exchange to the cloud. So now all my use cases for exchange don't work anymore. So there's all this stuff going on. But there's also like new technology out there that, that does this kind of adversary simulations where you can say, well, it, it works with an agent, you give it a campaign and you can run that campaign like on a weekly basis. And I find those things are, for me, I find very interesting because like number one question typically that, that companies get from their board is how good are we at security <laughs> compared to other ones? Right. If you do this continuous spam testing and uh, or adversary simulation, then that actually shows you like we did a, a ransomware kill chain here, you know, your firewall detected this and your ETR detected and blocked that, but, you know, in your data lake, you didn't see that show up. It actually gives you a pretty good idea on, on, on how good you would be against something like that. And then if you have to test, let's say, the, or if you have to look at 
where do I go make new investments? At least you have an idea, like we have a blind spot there. And then the next level, you can say, instead of just buying something or doing a proof of concept, well, I can actually do two or three proof of concepts. I have this continuous adversary simulation running, and I can very quickly identify what technology is bringing me to a higher level. And you get a, a much more objective judgment also to go and defend that to, to the business. Like, why are we selecting this? Well, look, we did three tests, and this is what came out of it, and this is how much each solution costs. And this is the one that we think, you know, we have numbers actually behind us that show that in our environment, this had better results. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of those kind of technologies. So there's a bunch of, uh, of vendors now in the market space, and it's still pretty new, but I, I do think there's not just for security, but also translating that technical aspect to the business, right? That right. say, well, we actually have something that can show you a graph on where we were and where we are now. So I find that really interesting. It's a measure of efficacy versus just maturity, and it allows you to tell a story. And within that story, you can talk about strengths and weaknesses, opportunities for improvement, investments. And it also shows, it allows you to confidently answer to say, you know, this is, this is how good I think we are, and here's validation that supports my, my assertion. This is that, that we are, in fact able to see these kinds of problems, but are unable to see these others. And I think that's one last thing I'll state. It doesn't always have to be an outside group. And I share pen testing as a product of, of compliance, and it's usually nonsense. You need to do things, just for the listener, that actually lead to what I would consider endpoint or credential compromise. If it's not doing that, it's not worth your time for what we're discussing, what Luke and I are talking about. And if you get advanced enough, or at least in the middle, you can sort of run these on your own if you're skilled enough, but sometimes you need outside help. Luke, I've got a ton more questions for you, but we're about out of time. I want to give you a chance. We, we close the show on the same question each time. You, as a new CISO, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does that mean to you? Personally, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really exciting experience for me because I've been or implementing security solutions for a very long time and being able now to implement that in my own company and drive that into a certain direction and say, I think this is the way we should go with this. So let's not build a SOC that's based on technology from 20 years ago, but let's, let's build this the right way now. Eh? And having that impact and, and making sure that exclusive as a company can transact in a, in a secure way with our vendors or with our partners. That's something that is really, really important to me. I take it really, really serious that, you know, that's my, my, for me, the key role is like, we need to be on top of things. We are a security distributor ourselves. We are, we distribute like the most high end emerging new companies and we implement them ourselves and we make sure that we have the in house knowledge on these products and and i think that's the the story to tell here it's like we are there to kind of evangelize the market and and show like there are solutions for these things and we are actually doing them ourselves and we see the results i find that really really interesting to have that kind of impact in in, in my own company yeah that's an excellent point you're sort of proving your own actions and luke you get to be the point the leader of that which is special 
thank you so much for your time today. I've enjoyed uh, having you on the show and uh, I hope to have a chat again soon. Thanks again so much. Thanks for having me. That was fun. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.